Good morning, everybody. Um, so Paul said I should say something about Easter, so I'm trying to think what to say now. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, so I do want to say, I think Ricky and I have been talking a bit recently just about, um, like, we, we do feel there is something about this time of year, maybe a bit like Christmas, where uh, people, family, friends, neighbours who don't normally come to church, um, there is a little bit more openness around times like Easter, uh, where if we take that little bit of a risk and invite someone to come to church with us, they, they might just surprise us and say yes. Um, and so I think we just we wanted to encourage you. Um, we're we're going to be putting, putting the marquee back up after church today. If anybody can hang around uh, to help put that up, that would be brilliant. So if it's a big crowd for Easter Sunday, there's overflow room outside, uh, so there's room for everybody. Um, and I guess we'd just love to encourage you, if you've someone on your mind that you'd love to invite to come, uh, we are going to be designing the service, I guess, thinking about maybe there being some people in the room who maybe don't know Jesus yet, uh, and just inviting people uh, to make a response to Jesus uh, next Sunday. Um, so we'd love, love to encourage you, um, invite uh, people you know. Uh, Ricky's also going to have a bunch of little books about the message of Easter, which are free to give away. Um, and again, we'll give those to anybody who comes next Sunday, or you can take one uh, to give to people uh, after church. So uh, that is that. But do, do help put up the marquee if you can. Uh, if you're not in a rush after church, uh, that would be great. Let's, let's pray together, just gather our hearts uh, before God's word. Father, just thank you uh, for those words that uh, Rachel read to us earlier on um, about paying attention to your words and how when we do that, your words bring life to those who find them and even bring health to our bodies um, and health to our whole lives. And so, Father, just as we open up your word, we, we don't want to do it flippantly. We don't want to do it casually. We don't want to do it uh, just as dull routine because we do this at this time every Sunday. Um, but we want to come hungry. We want to come expectant. We want to say you have the words of eternal life and we need your words to bring life to us. We need your words to bring health to our bodies and our minds and our lives. Um, and so, Father, we pray that you would speak to us uh, through your word and by your spirit in a way that will really make a difference, um, in, a, in a way that will change us. Um, and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, so I guess just by way of introduction, that, that's our title for this morning, um, is Another in the Fire, which is a little bit cryptic. Um, but I guess this is a message that I hope will kind of lead us towards Easter. Uh, but maybe we're going to do it in a slightly indirect way. We're going to be reading from the book of Daniel. Uh, but maybe by the end of the message, it might be clear how it kind of leads us towards uh, Easter and leads us into this Easter week. Um, I should also say this is actually a, an amended version um, of a sermon that I preached uh, a few weeks ago in the university to the university students. Um, and I wasn't happy with the sermon I preached to the students. 
Um, and I'm going to tell you a wee bit about that later on. So this is my second swing at it uh, with you guys. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about that uh, later. Um, let, let me start maybe in a strange place. Um, when, when I, um, the story that we're going to read in a minute from Daniel involves a massive gold statue. Um, when, I went, when I googled massive gold statue, um, I, I found this. Um, <laughs> Which is, this is a real photograph, which I missed this when it was on the news uh, seven years ago. Um, this was a statue of Chairman Mao uh, that was built in rural China uh, that is 120 feet tall uh, of Mao sitting down. Um, it actually got built over a number of months and then it got dismantled again because there was an outcry and it was, there was a lot of controversy about it in terms of uh, its appropriateness and the amount of money that had been spent on it and all that. Uh, if you look online, you can even find weirder photographs of just his head sitting on the ground as they were, were taking it apart. Um, the story we're going to read um, also involves a massive gold statue. I'm going to do a very quick context for the story we're going to read. Um, uh, it takes place in the 6th century BC. The Babylonian Empire dominated the world stage. Uh, the Babylonian Empire had kind of gobbled up many smaller nations, they had conquered Judah and Jerusalem. They'd taken many of the people into captivity, including many of the brightest and best young adults, including four young men whose names were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they were among the captives uh, who were taken from Jerusalem uh, to Babylon. Uh, and these young men were trained up to serve in the civil service, to be significant leaders in that culture. Uh, their integrity and their character led to respect and led to promotion, and they came to hold senior positions in the administration under the authority of the king, whose name was Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, the Babylonians liked to have terrifying names for their kings, so Nebuchadnezzar is kind of an impressive name. Um, Daniel and his three friends were given new Babylonian names, so their, their old names all contained references to the God of Israel, uh, to the living God but they were given new names which contained references to the gods of Babylon. And it was one way that the culture was seeking to put its mark on them. Uh, and so Daniel's three friends were renamed as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And when I say that, it may suddenly ring a bell and you remember something from Sunday school with flannel graph uh, about them. Uh, it may stir a memory for, uh, for some of you. And so we come to Daniel chapter 3, and Nebuchadnezzar built a huge gold statue, not quite as high as the Chairman Mao one. This one was 90 feet tall. And he gathered all the officials in his administration um, on a plane uh, in front of the, the gold statue. We don't know if the statue represented Nebuchadnezzar himself or represented one of the gods of Babylon. It doesn't say. Um, but the order is, as soon as they hear the music play, they are to bow down and worship the image. And anyone who doesn't bow down will be burned alive uh, in a blazing furnace. Uh, I want to encourage you, if you've time later on today, to go and read the whole story. It's quite a long story, uh, but it's, uh, it's a powerful, um, uh, kind of mesmerizing story um, uh, to, read, to read the whole thing. Uh, but I'm going to read just a little bit of it uh, this morning. The officials all gathered before the statue on the plane, the musical instruments played. All of the people on the plane bowed down. It's a very kind of cinematic, dramatic moment. Except for three figures 
who remain standing. And so I want to read from Daniel chapter 3, uh, reading from verse 13. And we're just going to read kind of the heart of the story. Uh, so let's read together. Daniel 3, reading from verse 13. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. I'm going to stop the reading there. And again, you can read the rest. We'll refer to the rest of the story in a little while. And you can read the rest of it um, later on. But that's kind of the heart of the story, I think, the little bit um, we've just read. Um, I want to notice um, just a couple of things really quickly before we get to kind of the, the heart of it. Um, just one thing to notice immediately um, that I think is important is these young men did not go looking for a fight. And I think that's really important to note maybe in our cultural moment when sometimes Christians are tempted to go looking for a fight or to go looking for trouble and to look for things to be offended by or to try to provoke a reaction. I don't know if you've ever seen a child that kind of keeps poking a dog and poking a dog or pulling its tail and eventually gets bitten. And sometimes that can be the way that we behave. We, we go looking for trouble and then uh, we get it. Daniel and his friends, it seems to me, um, did not go looking for trouble. They got on most of the time with living their life and doing their work faithfully. And they were very much doing what we talked about last week of living good lives among the pagans which often drew admiration and respect from their pagan neighbours. But every now and again, trouble came looking for them, right? So they weren't trying to pick a fight, but sometimes as they lived faithfully and lived their faith in the midst of their culture, trouble came looking for them. And I think that's a helpful model uh, for us. But it is true, if we are seeking like them to live faithfully where we are, and as we talked about last week, if we're doing that in the middle of a culture that is increasingly returning to some kind of paganism, we're going to come to these moments of choice when we have to decide who to bow down to. Will we serve the gods of our age and the idols of our culture? Or like these three young men, will we serve only the living God? Um, but I want to suggest um, the difficulty maybe or the challenge is most of the time for us, these moments will not be quite this clear and dramatic. It's going to be relatively rare 
that someone builds a 90-foot statue and asks you to bow down to it, right? It's, it's rarely going to be quite that explicit. The, the gods and idols of our culture, most of the time, are much more subtle. And so the moment of decision, the moment of choice, can be easy to miss. Um, although this is kind of not the main thing I want to think about this morning, I want to leave you with the question. Um, I think it's one of the most vital questions that we can ask, is what are the gods of our age and the idols of our culture? It's not a 90-foot uh, statue on a plane. But what is it that people in our culture will ask us to give our devotion to, or to give our allegiance to, or to give our strength to, or to devote our time to? Um, those are the things that become gods and idols. Uh, what are the things that we may already have started to bow down to without even realizing that we ever made a choice? Because it can be very subtle. The, the stormtroopers of the empire can take over your mind without even realizing that it's happened. Um, and so I think that's one of those questions as Christians we need to be talking about together. What do, you, what do you see? What do I see that are the gods of our age and the idols of our culture? How can we, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, say we will not bow down? Uh, how can we be loving resistance fighters um, in the midst of our, our culture? So that's all. That's not what I want to talk about, right? But I'm just dropping that in uh, to bother you this week. Um, but I want to come now to, to what I think is the remarkable heart of the story. Um, these three young men um, stand in front of the most powerful man on earth, because that's who Nebuchadnezzar was at that moment in time. And they say to him, you can throw us in the fire if you want. And the God we serve is able to deliver us. Right? I think that's a remarkable statement of faith they're they're saying god is greater than the king god is greater than the empire and all the might of babylon god is greater than this fire which is so hot that even those who go near it get burned up they're saying god is greater god is able to deliver us you have no power over us right it's a remarkable statement of faith but even having said that <laughs> I don't think we're at the heart of the story yet. Um, I actually don't think that's the most remarkable thing that these young men say. I think the most remarkable part comes next because they say, but even if he does not, we will not bow down. Um, let me just say in passing, I hope, hope this is not confusing, um, but I sometimes we rush to get to this bit and I think this bit is not doesn't have the power that it does in this story if, they, if, if it doesn't come after this bit. Um, because there, there are some of us who sometimes we don't really believe God can deliver or God can rescue or God can heal or God can perform miracles. And we rush to, um, I'm okay with whatever, right? That's not a powerful statement. I think we have to have first reckoned with the fact that God is not passive. God is powerful. He is mighty to save he can do remarkable things. He can raise the dead. He can heal the sick. He can perform dramatic miracles. And then they come to this moment and they say, but even if he does not, we will not bow down. Um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't believe that their faith guarantees that they will survive the fire. They believe in a God of miracles, 
They believe God can and often does intervene to rescue his people from trouble. They've seen it before. They've heard the stories. But they also know that sometimes he doesn't. And sometimes God's faithful people suffer. And sometimes God's faithful people die. And they know that that is also part of the stories that have been handed down to them. Um, there's, a, there's one of those moments when I'm going to mention a movie and say I'm not recommending it because you might hate it. Uh, but there's a movie I love, um, a very, very odd little indie movie called Safety Not Guaranteed, um, which has a delightful premise. And the premise is uh, that someone is reading the paper one day uh, and they find a little classified ad. Um, and I don't know if you can see what it says, but it says in the ad, wanted someone to go back in time with me. This is not a joke. You'll get paid after we come back. Must bring your own weapons. I've only done this once before. Safety not guaranteed. And that's the beginning of the movie, and they go to meet this guy, and you don't know, has he discovered time travel, or is he just a bit mad? Uh, and that's where the, the movie goes. Um, but I want to suggest if we were putting a truthful ad in the Korean Chronicle, um, inviting people into a life of discipleship, of following Jesus, if we were putting a truthful ad, we would need to say, safety not guaranteed. There's a remarkable passage in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 11, um, that I go back to often, and it, it talks about those who have lived by faith in the past. And there's a bit where it says, uh, there's a really inspiring bit where it says some of them conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, saw the dead raised to life. And you're reading that bit and you're going, if that's the life of faith, then sign me up. I am 100% in. But then the writer to the Hebrews, without even pausing for breath, says others were tortured. Some faced jeers and flogging chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They lived in caves and holes in the ground. They were destitute, persecuted and mistreated and the world was not worthy of them. What does the life of faith look like? It looks like conquering kingdoms and seeing the dead raised and it looks like being sawn in half and living in holes in the ground and all this other stuff. Safety is not guaranteed, right? All of that is the life of faith. Maybe uh, we might then ask, you know, well, what is the nature then of, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, but even if he does not, um, what is the nature then of their faith? What are they trusting if safety is not guaranteed? If they're, if they're not 100% sure that God will rescue them from death, what does their faith mean? What are they trusting? And I think it's a really important question to wrestle with. And I, as I've wrestled with it in this story, um, I've come up with three answers and I wanna share them with you and you can, you can think about them. Um, I think this is what they're holding on to. They know God may rescue them. They know God can deliver them. But what are they 100% sure of? I think they're sure of these things. Um, they're sure that God is good and trustworthy in himself not just for what he can do for them or what he can give them, but in himself, God is good and God is trustworthy. Whatever the circumstances, whatever the outcome, God is good, right? So I think that's part of their faith. 
Second thing that I think is part of their faith um, is that God will be with them even in the fire. And of course, if you know the story, you can go and read it later on. Um, this part is fulfilled in a dramatic way because as Nebuchadnezzar looks into the fire, not only does he see the three young men walking around, but he sees a fourth figure alongside them in the fire. And Nebuchadnezzar says, the fourth figure looks like a son of the gods. There's something different about him. He looks like a man, but not like a man. Um, and of course, people have puzzled over this and some people have taken this to be an appearing of Jesus himself in the Old Testament, a Christophany, for people who like a big word. Um, some people have taken it to be uh, an, the angel of the Lord who often appears in the Old Testament representing the presence of God himself. Um, I, I think we're not quite sure. I think either way, God is present in the fire and makes his presence manifest in a really visible way. Um, and I think these three young men know whatever happens, God is going to be with them in the fire. And the third thing that I think they know 100% is that God will bring them through to a good end. Uh, one way or another, they're going to be rescued from Nebuchadnezzar's hand. One way or another, Nebuchadnezzar can't hold on to them. They're, they're going to be delivered from Nebuchadnezzar either by miraculous rescue from the fire or by passing through death into life eternal in God's hands, which is the safest place you can be. The powers of Babylon might kill their bodies, but they can't harm their souls. They can't harm the truest, deepest part of who they are. And so they know that the, the end of the story, one way or another, is going to be good. Um, and again, you probably know, in the case of these three young men, God chooses to intervene and rescue them from the fire. But I want to suggest, again, coming back to this remarkable statement, that we miss the point of the story if we focus only on the miraculous rescue. Um, actually, this story in Daniel 3 has been especially important through history to Christians who are walking through suffering and persecution and death and walking through fire in extraordinary ways and see no sign of miraculous rescue but still choose to trust God. And they've come back to this story again and again to say we believe God can deliver us but even if he doesn't, we will not bow down. We're going to trust that he is good. We're going to trust that he's with us. We're going to trust that the end of the story is good. Um, let, let me tell you two stories to illustrate this uh, before I then tell you why I didn't like this sermon. Um, or, or it was incomplete. Um, two quick stories. Uh, 19 years ago, uh, I went to a conference in the Netherlands uh, with people involved in Christian Union student work in 150 countries around the world. I think a few weeks ago, uh, I quoted from a talk that I still remembered from that conference. Um, but if I'm being totally honest, I've forgotten most of the talks, as people do, right? Um, but the, the thing that I, I remember most from that time in the Netherlands um, was being led in worship by Christians from different nations. And each session of worship was led by people from a, a different country. And in particular, what I've never forgotten is being led in worship by Christians who, had, who came from 
parts of South America and parts of Africa and parts of Asia where they had suffered poverty and famine and civil war. And especially Christians from Rwanda who had been through the horrors of genocide, but who led us in worship and danced with joy. And I, I may have told this story before, I think it's the only time in my life that I've made an attempt at dancing during worship. Um, but it was for a good reason. It was because I felt rebuked as a, a, a Northern, Northern European white man, uh, that my hands were in my pockets as I worshiped. And my brothers and sisters who had been through the fire and who had sometimes seen God deliver miraculously and sometimes had seen their brothers and sisters killed for their faith. And they sang and they danced. And the, the moment that I've really never forgotten was those Christians from Rwanda leading us in song and singing that song that we sang just before I spoke and singing, blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful where your streams of abundance flow, when the sun's shining down on me, when the world's all as it should be, blessed be your name. But then without skipping a beat, blessed be your name when I'm found in the desert place, when I walk through the wilderness, on the road marked with suffering, when there's pain in the offering. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise, but even when the darkness closes in, still I will say. And they sang and they danced and I did my little awkward shuffle. Um, it's powerful when you see it, that kind of faith. It says, I believe God can do the miraculous and deliver, even if he doesn't. I'm going to trust him. Um, the week before I spoke to the students uh, in the university, um, I'd forgotten that the students had given me this passage to speak on, um, but I went and spent a morning with Grant and Gillian, and I've asked them if I can share this story. Uh, most of you know Grant uh, just recently was diagnosed with cancer. He was told that it was inoperable. He was told that perhaps he only had months to live. Um, I guess the very simple story I want to tell you is that I, I spent a couple of hours in that home uh, a few weeks ago, and I found that there was no fear in that home and no self-pity. There was a tangible peace and joy. And as we talked together, and I'd forgotten I was needing to preach on this passage, but Grant brought up this story. He said, do you remember that story of the three young men and the fire? And Grant said to me, John Mark, I believe God can still work a miracle and confound the doctors and bring healing. And we have lots of friends who are praying for that. And I'd love you to pray for that too, right? So church, keep praying for that, right? But then Grant said to me, even if he doesn't, we're choosing to trust God. And we're praying that he will show his goodness and his glory in this journey. And we're giving thanks for all his kindness to us. And we're naming the signs of God's goodness that we're seeing. And it was really clear, Grant and Gillian are trusting that God is good. They're trusting that God is with them in the fire. They're trusting that one way or another, God will deliver Grant from cancer and bring him to a good end. And actually, when I was in their home, they wanted to spend more than, a, more than half of our time together just talking about heaven. And what do you, what do you think it'll be like? And talking about glory, um, talking about the, the end of the story for all of us um, beyond death. It's amazing when you see it, that kind of faith. 
I believe God can deliver me. Even if he doesn't, I'm going to trust. Um, that is more or less what I preached to the students um, a few weeks ago. Um, uh, and it's not a bad sermon. I think that's, a, that's an okay sermon, right? Um, but in the days afterwards, I felt kind of bothered about something, um, which happens occasionally. And my, I kept thinking about why, why am I a wee bit bothered about that sermon? I wasn't quite happy with it. And I guess my mind kept going back to the fourth figure in the fire. There's how one uh, painter has painted that scene. Um, the one Nebuchadnezzar said looked like a son of the gods. Um, and I went back thinking again about that, that figure. Um, I, I still think we don't know for sure if that was Jesus. Some people are very definite that was Jesus. I think we don't know. There's a bit of mystery. The story doesn't tell us. Um, but here's the conclusion I came to. I think I was wrong not to linger there a little bit longer. Uh, because what I do think is this, that as we read this story as Christians from this side of the cross, I think the figure in the fire should and must remind us of Jesus. Right? So whether that was uh, an appearing of Jesus or not, that figure must remind us of Jesus. Why, why do I say that? When Jesus came, um, Philippians 2 says he was found in appearance as a man. And not just an appearance, but we, we believe that he took on true humanness. And this extraordinary thing with Jesus, that people perhaps could look at him, could glance at him, could look at him and see a very ordinary man. And yet others looked again and saw something remarkable, something of the light of heaven about him. And some people started to say, perhaps not this is a, a son of the gods, but perhaps this is the son of God. Um, and Jesus came to stand with us in our humanity. And of course, he was called Emmanuel, which means God with us. He came to stand with us um, in all that we go through as human beings, including when we're in trouble, including when we're in the fire. Um, and in the end, and this is where I think this story leads us towards Easter. In the end, Jesus walked right into the fire. He went to the place of unimaginable suffering, of physical pain, of emotional pain, of spiritual agony. And he bore the sins of the world in his body on the cross. And he experienced even the darkness of God's absence and God forsakenness. And maybe most poignantly, in that moment, there was no deliverance for him. There was no last-minute reprieve. There was no last-minute rescue. Um, there's an amazing um, Christian poet called Steve Turner um, who writes poems that are um, very funny and playful, but then also kind of hit you a punch in the gut uh, when you least expect it. Um, Steve Turner uh, wrote a poem called The Cast of Christmas Reassembles for Easter. And he's kind of imagining the the people, the kids who are in a nativity play being recommissioned for Easter. Um, and I, I want to read you just a little bit of his poem. He says, take the wise men to the emperor's palace, wash their hands in water, get them to say something about truth. The shepherds should stand with the chorus. They have a big production number. Barabbas, we love you, baby. 
Mary, she can move to the front. We have a special section reserved for family and close friends. Tell her we had to cut the manger up. We needed the wood for something else. The star, I'm afraid I can't use. There are no stars in this show. The sky turns black with sorrow. The earth shakes with terror. Hold on to the frankincense. We'll need that for the garden scene. Angels. He could do with some angels. Avenging angels. Merciful angels. He could really do with some angels. So Steve Turner brings us to that place where for Jesus in that moment, there were no angels. He passed through the fiercest fire, the deepest darkness. He allowed himself to be consumed and crushed. And why did he do it? He did it for us and our salvation. He did it for you, to bring you forgiveness and healing and hope. And so that's what I wish I'd said to the students as well as the other things that I said. So I'm saying it to you. Um, what does that mean for, for us this morning and this week as we head towards Easter? Um, well, I guess just very simply, um, I don't know what kind of fire you might be facing at the minute. I'm aware there are people in our church family who are going through um, really, really um, scorching fire. Um, so it might be a blazing furnace that you're going through right now, or it might be a smaller fire. There are all kinds of smaller fires that come our way, but they still hurt and they still scare us. Um, and I guess very simply, um, I, want, I want to encourage you this morning that there is another in the fire standing next to you, and he has been to the deepest, darkest depths for you, and so you don't need to be afraid. And that's it. <laughs> That's what I want you to know. Um, the students, when I was there, sang a song, which I'll send out uh, with the email tomorrow morning. Um, and part of the song just says this. Um, looking back, maybe at a time of suffering in our life, it says, there was another in the fire standing next to me. There was another in the waters holding back the seas. And should I ever need reminding of how I've been set free, there's a cross that bears the burden where another died for me. There's another in the fire. Um, let's pray together. Um, I want to encourage you, maybe, maybe especially if you're going through a bit of a fire right now and you need someone to pray with you um, and pray the reality of these things over you, uh, there'll be a couple of people here who'd love to pray uh, for you this morning. Um, let's pray together and then we're going to sing. Father, I wanna, I wanna thank you this morning for the inspiring example of people of faith. Um, I wanna thank you for people like these three young men long ago in Babylon who stood while everybody else was bowing down. I wanna thank you for those people of faith in Hebrews 11 who walked by faith and trusted you whether it was in times of great breakthrough and victory or times of great suffering, but they kept trusting you. I want to thank you for those Christians from Rwanda and other parts of the world who have suffered in ways we can't imagine and still 
choose to bless God. Um, I want to thank you for people in our own community like Grant and Gillian um, who are an example to us of this kind of faith. Um, but most of all this morning we want to thank you for Jesus and we want to thank you that he came to be with us, to stand with us so we're never alone. And we want to thank you that he walked into the fire for us. And this week, perhaps as we walk towards Easter weekend, um, I want to pray, would you help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Um, would you help us this week um, to fix our eyes on him and to consider him so that we will not grow weary or lose heart. And I pray that you would ignite and inspire in us the kind of faith that we've been talking about this morning. We pray that we would stand out in our generation as people who trust God no matter what. And we pray in the name of Jesus.